My name is Susie Can, and I hope you enjoy exploring with me the thoughts that come with this thread. If you have any interest in supporting what I'm doing or getting in touch, please do so through the website kylak.ie, where you will also find other resources and connections that I create around each podcast so that if some of the tweaks of interest come to you through them, you have a place to go to go a little further and deeper or to find other information or to find a way to support by maybe wanting to collaborate or offer something or even a donation. Thanks for listening. For this last interview for the podcast, I decided to respond to something that a few people had asked me, which was, would they get to hear anything from Mike, my husband and partner in everything that we have done at Caragdura and beyond? And so I thought that's a good idea and that's what we're going to do. So I have Mike here beside me. I'm going to attempt to interview him a little bit and also then just let ourselves get into as natural a conversation we can have while recording ourselves. One of the things that several other interviewees talked about was a moment when they walked away from a more mainstream direction that their life could have taken. And Other interviewees talked about having grown up in a lot of exposure to nature or from very early on rejecting a mainstream life like Judith O did, for example. And Mike and I seem to be a combination of both of those things. I wanted to start with you read a book that changed the way you were thinking about the world and what might be coming. Could you start with talking about that bit? Sure. The the book that I came across was by Rachel Carson, and it was called Silent Spring. When I read it, I didn't really know what it was about. For those who haven't seen it, it's a story of what happened in an ecosystem in response to a large amount of pesticides. In this case, it was DDT used. And the silent spring refers to basically there was no bird calls and there was no insects. I think up till that point, I was in suburban New York, so I had some aspect of exposure to nature, but it was tightly controlled and human-managed nature. But I had never really considered the impact that humans could have that could be bad. And I just accepted the way things were, and that's the way they have to be. I didn't even consider going against any of the system that I lived in. And that system included spraying pesticides in those days. The, The book was not too before my time. So I'm not sure at what level it challenged me. One of them was it made me really upset that we had done this. And the other one was about the possibility that not everything that we do is actually okay. I was a teenager at this stage, but I think that I had a pretty easy life up until that point. All my physical needs were met, uh, at least. And, you know, I didn't have to worry about, you know, housing or food or warmth or anything like that. Very little struggle. I never really had to challenge or worry about it. And my, my dad's 
career and his my mom didn't have a career outside the home for a long time when I was growing up. Um, but my dad's career was all about law and all about sort of the system. The first step in looking at the system from the outside or from, you know, what some possible things that might be bad about it. After that, I know you went to college in New England, having read Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. And I think it's a book that many environmentalists cite as birthing a significant part of the environmental movement in America and then beyond. Was there a point at which you started doing things influenced by that experience of, of starting to look at things with a, a new lens? I'll just start by saying that even before I read the book, I was already kind of ready to hear some of the messages I got from that book. So for example, when I was much younger, um, I used to play in the woods behind my parents' house or in another woods that wasn't far from us. Funny enough, I would have I would play army games with friends, but that we were in the woods and I'm not sure how much of I enjoyed the games and how much I enjoyed just being in nature. I wasn't really that social in some ways, but I did like doing that. And the other one is that my mom kind of saw the natural world through the lens of science. And that's what she gave me in a big way. And it, some of it was like lab science, hard science, that kind of thing. But some of it was the wonder of the world and that she gave me that as well. And I remember as a young boy going to a beach with my mom and looking at rock pools, gazing and falling into, not literally, but looking at all the life there and being in that world and then coming out and looking around and saying, oh, that was a little space I was in for a long time. Had that in me. And so when I went to college, I didn't do activism or political things, at least not straight away. What I did was I did more camping and outdoorsy things and hikes and running in the woods because the, the college I went to and the area I lived afterwards was more rural than where I had grown up. We met about a year after you finished college as we kind of committed to each other, I guess, as we got together and started to feel like we were going to stay together. We had a lot of dreams and fantasies about what we would do together. And I think I came with this, not an environmentalist's kind of understanding, but more a conservationist's understanding. I loved nature from childhood through family connection and exposure, but I didn't have a, I didn't, I don't think even know at 20 what an environmentalist was, but I did know what a conservationist was. We also talked about how we would live and what sorts of things we would do in the world and where we might want to be in a potentially rural back to land kind of vision. Or we also talked, I think, about summer camps for kids as I was working with kids at the time. Can you add in anything that you recall about those early ideas or dreams? Having lived in a rural area, I definitely liked the quiet and the connection with nature more. And I wanted to do that at the time we met, I was actually teaching kids in primary school where you taught for a little while as well. And we did a lot of nature activities. And I was impressed by some of the kids who lived in very rural Vermont, that they seemed to know at some not scientific technical level, but they seemed to know at a sort of gut level stuff about nature that I didn't even see someone walking through woods who understands about animals might see tracks or spore or something like that. And they did do that. And they just knew how animals behave and what they did and that sort of thing. And that really impressed me at a deep level to think that this is the way that people used to live and other kids that we 
potentially could teach or bring to, it would be amazing to be able to bring that into the world. The school that you were, were volunteering in and I ended up volunteering in was an unusual school. It was a one-house school set up by a woman who had that kind of a vision. It was called Open Fields, and the children were able to have self-directed type of learning. The teaching that we both did was very directed by the children. The thread that we were both talking about back then was our views on education, particularly nature connected. I was working with a family in Vermont and we went away with them at one point to an island in Maine. Devil's Island. Watching the kids there too, I think. You know, the, the, the complete freedom on an island where they couldn't get lost really. It was two families and the kids just were roaming free. It actually touched on almost every childhood book fantasy I had of like Swallows and Amazons and another one where a child ran away to a gypsy caravan. We had that romanticism about if we could let children be free in the wild. That was something we kind of imagined. Definitely. That was a, a that's a magical experience that we had. I mean, part of it that was that we were deeply in love and that we were spending all this time together, unstructured space and time in nature. That's kind of what, what I think one of the gifts of where we have now at Carigdura is the same, is it's not so structured. And that when I was growing up, a lot of the time and space that I had in nature was much more structured, as I mentioned, human structured, or just the fact that there's so much human habitation for where I was living, that there was very little that was actually untouched. It was all managed in some way or another. And it's taken me a very long time to appreciate, understand, and actually like the complete unstructuredness of, as in not human structuredness of nature. It, it is almost too messy and scary for someone who grew up in such a controlled place. It's like a Victorian garden versus a cottage garden. No garden at all, just being out in the wild. Yes. Later on, you did do some work with environmental organizations, with children. Reminds me of what you said about the going and looking in rock pools, because the work with Soundwaters was on a boat. Soundwaters is an environmental organization that teaches on a 18th century Baltic schooner. The kids from various schools on the um, towns that are along the coast of Long Island Sound, which is the northern part of Long Island and the southern coast of Connecticut. We would go and visit those ports. The kids would come on board. They would help us sail. And bear in mind, this is an old boat, so it's not so straightforward to sail. The sails are huge. It's square rigged. And basically what that means is that there's like basically big telephone poles going across the sail at the bottom and the, and the side that you have to lift. And so you get a whole team of kids pulling you in. We sang songs and all that kind of stuff. They're doing this out on the water. What we were doing was that there would be a bunch of educators and each of us would have a specialty. So mine was plankton. And that was quite variable. There was a couple other ones. There was another one who did a trawl for larger creatures. And because of Long Island Sound having pollution in some areas, but obviously it's a big body of water connected to the Atlantic, um, some days we'd go out and we would catch huge amounts of really interesting things at the microscopic level and at the macroscopic level. So I would be there with my little net and microscopes and the kids would be looking at all these wriggly things in the water. The girl who was in charge of doing the trawl of the bigger stuff would have like crabs and lobsters and fish and shrimp and everything else, you know, whatever kind of thing she got. Then other days we'd have nothing, absolutely nothing. You'd pick up rubbish or a bit of seaweed or something like that. 
depending on which group, you'd get a different message out of it. But I think that on the days when they got that sense of wonder of these are the things, and we weren't really trying to tell them, oh, this is that thing and identify them in very specific terms. We're just trying to give them a sense of this is the life that's going on underneath the sea. So the groups that got to see that, great. And the groups that didn't, maybe they got a message more like, well, there should be life under there, but there's not. And what does that make you think of? Yes, with both the, those sorts of experiences that we were having with children. And I later worked in a therapeutic summer camp outside of Boston that I think I've spoken about. We were taking kids out into nature for different reasons, for really therapeutic reasons and giving them space and time to explore a greater world around them than the urban disadvantaged world they came from. Both influenced us later, as we, as you mentioned, when we come to Karagdulra, but there's quite a lot of life happens in between. We have our own family, we have a home, we, we start, I start growing vegetables and we start camping and hiking and the blend of both of our experiences and in the way that we're raising our kids. But I'm going to fast forward through those years when we begin to really properly start conceiving of Karagdulra. And there is a period, particularly when we had bought a house and had mortgage payments where you had done what you did in college and were working in the IT world. Then we began to think of a extraction plan because you'd had it with the IT world, really. You'd had enough of corporate computing and that demand on your time and the lack of time it was giving you with our children. We went off woofing. I've also talked about that elsewhere. And there is a blog about that whole trip. But for you, when we started to conceive of Karagdura and what it would be for, what were your ideas? The idea that I had wasn't one idea, neither was it for you. It was this feeling that having a nature place and having some elements of it that kids can roam and do stuff, but also having elements of it that were educational and that you would give space to allow people to have time in nature that they wouldn't otherwise have, which kind of reflected my upbringing. Those kind of things gelled in different ways depending on the day when we were thinking about what we would actually like to do. One of the ideas I remember we had was an eco campground. It would be a campground that was very family friendly and we had camped a lot as a family. So we knew the sort of things that would make things much simpler for especially with small children, animals that they could interact with and things like that. There was an element of education, both in terms of we would do everything ecologically, but also that we'd make it easy for people to see that we were doing things ecologically. There was some element of bridging is maybe the best way to describe it, because I know that that's kind of been a theme for us, is that on the one hand, we would like to go to a place where we are in nature and our children have been raised in nature and have experienced it and understand it, similar to the kids that I described at that school all those years ago. On the other hand, I felt like there was something that I could offer to people who weren't there yet. That was this bridge. And I first experienced that bridge in a technical area when I was teaching computers to people who weren't technical. But the metaphor remained even if the subject matter changed, which was the difference between being a bridge to nature and a bridge to technology is that I think that we all have experience or are 
interaction with nature is kind of written into our DNA. It's already part of us, but it's not manifested because we haven't actually had the experience. And so it's like bringing someone home in a way. That was something that was worth doing in the world. Yeah, and I was coming up for air, having raised our own family with a vegetable garden, organic garden, and time in nature and all of those things, but not been paying attention to the continued environmental degradation during the 10 years where I was either pregnant or breastfeeding or with young toddlers was framing the conversation for me. There was a phrase, my author that I've mentioned frequently in this podcast, Stephen Harold Booner, it was, so you want to be a bridge. And that made me laugh because that's what you had been talking a great deal about, about, so we want to be a bridge. And that's what Caragdura will be. But then the second line was, but be careful being a bridge because you don't get to cross over yourself. And I think I was interested in crossing over ourselves as a family into something more more resilient and wanting community around what we were going to do and wanting to connect with others who understood the systemic situation kind of connected at that time to a lot of transition towns, fledgling organizational stuff that was going on in Ireland. And a lot of the transition towns people were quite apocalyptical in their predictions as to peak oil and climate change and systemic changes that would come. And we were talking about these things in 2006. So I think that there was a degree of prepping almost for me, which I've mentioned elsewhere, for our family and our community. Reading a book at the moment by David Graeber about anarchism, and I've talked a lot with our eldest about anarchism and permaculture because there are some similar traits in that there's a freedom to go about, organize your life and organize with other people, how to live in a free way without restrictions of a hierarchy and extractive economy and other things like this. And I think I was in those sorts of places while at the time you were, you were very much still bridging out of that IT world, thinking about people trying to exit the mainstream world, thinking about that education element. And I think we've been on a journey since we began swinging between those two places of meeting our family needs versus meeting community needs or outreach. And we both really didn't want to preach. There was a bit of eco-preaching in different movements that we were aware of, and we didn't like that. And it didn't come from your tradition of Judaism, where there's no proselytizing. And it was a reaction for me against Christian upbringing I'd had, where there's a lot of proselytizing. And we did we just didn't want to be eco-preachers if we were going to be bridges at all. When we first got it, I almost feel like, maybe this is just with hindsight, but I almost feel like it didn't really matter because we did end up running courses there, a mix, but they were somewhat the old model of, here's some information and we're going to pour it into your head. But I very early on, we noticed a phenomenon which I kind of call education by stealth, which is that you create structure, which could be a course but that the people who attend the course get something that you're not actually consciously giving them and they're not consciously aware of. The junior naturalist course that we ran was when I first had that sort of aha moment where the course was for kids and we wanted them to experience nature in the semi-structured way that a naturalist might, where they don't have any preconceptions or any huge amount of existing knowledge, but they want to observe things just as they are. 
and then note them down. Part of that course was kids just sitting in a very small space, marking out a small space with a bit of string and observing what's there and then maybe bringing back possibly samples or something for people to help them understand them a bit more. But we required every child to bring a parent or a grandparent or some adult to have with them. And I wasn't really thinking about the experience of that adult. But the feedback we got from the adults was that they absolutely loved it and they had a great time. And they were so enthusiastic about something that really wasn't that amazing from a pedagogical point of view, because what they were describing was they just had quiet time in nature with someone that they love. We couldn't advertise a course. Maybe you could now, but at the time, I couldn't even conceive of advertising a session of quiet time in nature with someone, you know, that's in remember of your family or something like that. But that's effectively what they got. And I began to realize that however much we put stuff for the one part of people's brain to access to say, okay, this is the reason I'm going to this place for this thing. It's very hard to explain to them or to sell to them in the commercial world. You're actually going to get something else and we're not going to give it to you. It's just being there. And so that was a big, that was a big learning for me. And it did kind of inform later stuff that we did. We had small children still at the beginning of Karagdura. We did a lot of things that would now maybe fall under what people call forest schools. You called it at the time bushcraft, and you did some courses yourself in sharing awareness in the woods or tracking and shelter making and fire making from bow drills. And we did a lot of that in informal groups as well with just friends and connections that we made through school and other things where we brought different kids up, sometimes summer projects with disadvantaged groups, and we'd make shelters in the woods and mixed in terms of who all was accessing. But as you say, the adult aspects of that, I think, as our own kids grew beyond those networks and other people began to step in and they continue to come to Dura in homeschool village groups and forest school groups that come now, that we're not the facilitators anymore. We moved more towards adult creation of space for education or nature connection as we began to more call it. At one point, you actually went and did a permaculture course down in Clockford Nico Village, when I had never heard of permaculture at that point, and brought that back and sort of talked to me about it. Do you remember that? I do. And the strange thing was that if I took that course now, I think I would understand it. But at the time, I couldn't really process it very well. I got some aspects of it, particularly the practical bits that we did. There was a little bit on mulching and forest gardening and stuff like that. But I didn't really, I don't think, get the bigger picture, the ecosystem picture and the whole ethical system and all that kind of stuff. I, I, I didn't really understand it, but I felt like this was going somewhere. But I have to say, I wasn't really that prescient to think that permaculture was going to be our future. I just felt like this is one of those things that kind of seemed right, but I couldn't really tell you why. And I remember when you brought back and must have got a book or something on permaculture and I read it and you knew a lot of very technical things in the world and maybe that science background that you had. And I looked at the book initially and it was completely impenetrable to me and thought, 
oh, this is going to be something that Mike will understand. I don't know. This must be very, very complicated because it isn't making any sense to me. And much, much later, I went back to the same book and had this realization that it was talking about things that I had been lucky enough to innately understand in a more direct connection with nature way about ecosystems and an ecosystem intelligence, if you like. And I went, oh, it's not complicated. It's really, really simple. But this book's language had made me feel like it was something more complicated than it was. And I think in recent years, where we are again kind of fast forwarding to having being on the ninth year of co-creating a permaculture design course again at Karagdura, that that did create a framework for us to offer something to adults and to sew together a lot of what had been weekend courses where we did organic growing courses with Wendy Nairn. We did some of the junior naturalists also involved. Richard Nairn is a naturalist. We did all of those other mixed courses with bushcraft forest skills. And this was sort of how do we bring all this together into one course? And permaculture did give us a framework for that, I think. Yes, yeah, it definitely did. And there's it's it's kind of nice because there's a lot of things that fall under permaculture and people like different stuff. You know, I like practical stuff. I like working with my hands and I like to kind of understand the bigger picture too, but I don't really want to dwell too much on that. And then there will be people, the people like me on the course, but there'll be people on the course who are very much in there, into the theory and into the design and that sort of thing. And very little experience on the, and maybe sometimes there's little interest in the practical stuff, although, you know, most people would be. The questions that have arisen and I've explored quite a bit in this podcast was what neither of us understood in the first years of was a lot about its origins. We kind of knew it came from these guys in Australia, as we thought. Now, when I look back, I realize that what I was recognizing was a deeper understanding of nature that actually is its true lineage, you know, and I think you've used words to talk about that, about what permaculture did in a bridging way for Westerners who had lost the connection that the original understandings came from, the indigenous understandings came from. The thing that happens when you are known to teach or host a course is that people ask you, so tell me what is permaculture? And they expect you to give them one or two sentences. And I struggled for a while to explain it in very specific terms, but my usual stock answer was, well, it's common sense that isn't so common anymore. So it's been it's been sort of codified for us because the stuff that we used to know but we don't know anymore, or something like that. And that does capture the essence of what it came from, which was Aboriginal knowledge. I didn't say that, but that's kind of my same feeling of when I said before about nature connection being coded in our DNA, it's it's we are part of nature and that we are meant to be in nature and we are meant to have these connections. But if you take us out of it or don't ever let us get access to it, that part of us doesn't grow, but it's still there. Very fundamental feeling. I can't, I can't describe how moving it was when I first made fire with my own hands without any kind of thing other than a bow drill. There's a feeling that you get, or that I got anyway, 
that was quite, I don't know, visceral is the right word, but it was so deep. And it wasn't to do with anything intellectual or practical. Because like I say to anyone who asks me about it, I probably will never need that skill. And I'll probably never use it in earnest. I'll only just use it because I like doing it. So why is it that it felt so powerful? And I think it's because there's certain things like shelter making and fire making and, you know, working with plants, particularly edible plants, but working with nature and understanding it and having these connections that aren't just intellectual, that is kind of a fundamental part of us. Um, And that permaculture is a really good frame for bringing along as a bridge the intellectual side of people and also the, I'm not sure what the other side of it you would call it, but the one that's the direct connection with nature people. And interestingly, I think that um, you and I have a kind of different balance of those things because we both have both of them. But I've most of my life been much more in the scientific intellectual side of my brain with this other part of me that I definitely acknowledge has huge power and is important. But I've for most of my training and my upbringing and everything else, I think it was the subservient side. It was the in service to the intellect and the system and all that kind of stuff. And so this bridging thing is important to me, not just for helping other people cross the bridge, but for myself in that I'm bridging across those two sort of ways of interacting with the world in me, as well as helping other people do it, giving myself permission to go a bit more with the one that's been subservient for so long. And I think that the reason why I've hung on to the bridge possibly longer than you in terms of how I see where I am in the world is because a bridge connects two places. And in order for you to go to the far side and stay on the far side, you have to break the connection with the place you just came from. And I don't think that I've ever been willing or able to say completely goodbye to the sort of structured systems that I grew up in. Only the last few years where wider world has become aware of this thing that I am always looking at, have been looking at really since I came up from air from that baby intense period in our lives that I do look at the system collapsing the the effects of the system on the other parts of the world, the huge impact of colonialism on indigenous peoples and the resistance movements that are active in the world emotionally a long time ago severed the bridge from wishing to be in any way aligned with that world and maybe have dragged you at times, you know, away as we've attempted to sever what links we can. And I think our dialogue is often about, well, how much can we sever it? And my inclination, I'm quite inspired by Mark Boyle, who wrote The Moneyless Man, but went on to write a book called The Way Black Home. His attempt to say, can I in some way decouple myself from the violence inherent in the existence system? And so he tried to live without anything that was made in violence produced by people who are exploited and oppressed by the system. And so that meant that he gave up on all electronics and he lived and wrote by candlelight and used the postal system. And he wrote his journey about what that was like. And I think if I wasn't with you, I think that I have that edge of extreme 
I don't want any part of the system. I want to sever the bridge. And then, of course, being with you, but also having children who we didn't pull out. We, we contemplated pulling out to intentional communities or eco-village or the away. And I think maybe you and our children, too, have, have maybe been part of that conversation ongoing about the not really being any such places away. So what can we do in community here? And Cargdul has been much more that than uh, it's away. It's outside of the system completely. It's actually always had people come that are still plugged in and are still usually working very clearly within it. Uh, and I think on the course, we get people who have the same inclination who want, you know, there's some people who say, I just want a little bit of this in my garden in Dublin, or I want a little bit of activism through community gardening, or I want something like that. And then there's other people who want a way and they want to live completely separately. Yeah. So that's kind of where we've ended up as, as, as it changed us. I don't know, have you any thoughts about how it taught us, how, how having stewardship of that little piece of four acres and what we did learn, what it was teaching us, how, what it was connecting us to in returning to our own connection to nature. It's so hard to even put down, to quantify the things that I've learned from not just our experience of running a social enterprise on a piece of land, but just being the stewards of that land. The social enterprise stuff is the conventional stuff you would probably imagine, so I really won't go into that. But the other side of that question, the bit you asked, is so big and so hard for me to describe because I don't think I have words. It's been an escape and uh, protected us and held us in various times where, you know, we just need a bit of nature and just need a bit of space. And it's just a beautiful, quiet place. Um, and that it's given me sometimes, I just need this. Well, certainly in the spring and the summer, it's beautiful and easy to be there. But even sometimes in the winter when you go out and it's very calm and you can see the stars and it's just absolutely still. And then you can hear animal noises and things like that. Those are sort of describing the experiences. But what happens inside is, I suppose it's kind of the best way to describe it is kind of an expansion from my gut outwards to sort of encompass the space. Such a lovely counterpoint to what our conventional society is basically centered around our heads and is kind of ego-based. And it's so it tends to close down and be narrowed so that it's just you, your head, and maybe your body. But this is kind of the opposite feeling. So it's not that often because life happens and things have to be done. But when I allow myself, that is that alternative is an amazing experience. One of the names we considered choosing for Karagdura when we first were trying to name this entity, whatever it was, we thought of using the Irish for refuge, which is Tierman. And there was already a community garden in West Wicklow called Antirman, so we didn't use it. And I know that the ecology centre in Wicklow Town was, is called Antarshock, which is the threshold because of crossing over into something else. So definitely there has been that experience for us personally and our hopefully we can see echoes of it in our children and their experience of growing up with that exposure. We often stayed and camped at Caragdura for whole summers. I think the longest we lived up there was about four months up to November when we could see the stars and it got very cold. 
but we have had those experiences of it being a refuge for us. And we know from the kinds of feedback that people who come and have been volunteers with us for very long stretches, we've had woofers from the beginning and we've had people on courses that come and are residential weekends or whole weeks and a little longer. And they also describe exactly that, that getting this haven, getting a bit of refuge, getting a quiet place and a place that's got wild sides to it, zone five woven throughout it and on its edges and up into the woods on Carrig Mountain. Andulra, which means nature, and Carrig, which means rock, that's what we ended up calling it. And I think the rock of nature or whatever, has it has continued to offer that to other people. There is a poet whose name I cannot think of, who's a friend of John O'Donoghue, but he talked about being in conversation with things and everything being a relationship. And for me, that's what it's like for me at Caragdura is that it helped me find my friends again in nature. When I was a child, I, I talked to everything that was around me. I talked to little insects and I talked to plants and I talked to the sea and I talked to headlands and I talked to clouds as my friends. And I kind of lost that somewhere in the middle. And now when I walk around Caragdura, I have all these friends there and that has helped my me expand that beyond I learned and made those relationships there. But when I was, when I go to any city and I feel unfamiliar, I sometimes go and look for a community garden. And it's just like going to another city and looking for some, you know, coming across some Irish people and feeling a connection of friendship. And so I've passed some rosemary or something or another plant that I know well. And it's like, oh, hi, there you are. There's a friend of mine. And the word Stephen Hunt Booner used for it actually is biophilia. It's falling in love again with everything in nature. And so that's how it has played out for me. To finish up with what I wanted to ask, because we've been talking about this a lot and I thought it'd be interesting just to share as this is the last podcast episode in the series of by 8 by 8 so that I'm at sort of 64 podcasts. Where next for Karagdura? What are we discussing and thinking about in relation to the next steps? And I don't think I'll talk here about next steps for the social enterprise, because I think that's something that is essentially people we've been collaborating with for many years in the creation of courses. We're having conversations about what next, and that's going to happen in a more collaborative sense. But for groups that are going to continue to come for what we can do on the land, and even our children's ideas of arts and film and so on, maybe weaving into that in arts and ecology is kind of coming back through from my original background. But what are your ideas for what can continue to happen there? Well, I think that the interesting thing to me is that my and your ideas aren't actually going to be as important as they have been. Because up until now, you know, whatever we said about being stewards or whatever, it's our place and we invite people in and we do give them a lot of unstructured time. But ultimately, we're the ones who are, I don't know if gatekeeper is the right word, but we're the ones who are deciding the, the terms on which people engage with the place. And I think that it's pretty fundamental shift to be saying that we may not always be those people, not only because, you know, we won't be around forever, but also because we're thinking of it in a different way where the groups that are already engaged or may be engaged in future have ideas and inclinations to do things. And by 
saying to them, well, why don't you just do them? Instead of saying, well, what are you thinking of? And we'll see, does it fit with what we want to be happening here? Because I think you get to a stage where, well, first of all, I suppose there has to be some trust and understanding so that you're not bringing in um, people who are going to be doing things that, that just don't fit with being stewards of the land. You know, what they do is possibly less important. I would love to see some things because I'm interested in them, but I also feel like there are things I don't even know about or things that I may not be interested in, but they're still really good things to be doing. Yeah. And and I think that the word we've been using to talk about this is succession planning. And that succession planning is, as you say, not entirely up to us. It is a conversation with our children who are involved or want to be involved. And it is already actively happening with groups that come to the land now and who have been coming for many years. So like you say, we have relationships with them and, and there's trust established. I love seeing people taking more and more ownership of what they are creating there and how they will use the space. And because as you say before, when we would have had volunteers or groups come and mills and different things, we were always the influencers as to what was happening. So we've had, I always see Caragdua as having been created by community, trying to do what we did at Caragdua in terms of buildings and, and you know, the cob barn or the greenhouse or the circle garden or the forest garden or the native woodland, we wouldn't have managed all of those things in the same way at all if we'd thought of them from the beginning as only ours, as a small holding for just one family. So because we thought of it as a community project, a sort of giant community garden somehow, we've always had idea inputs and physical labor inputs and practical inputs from lots of people. I sometimes see them in my mind's eye in the bar and I'll think oh, that's when the kids all put those bottles in the cob or that's when this particular woofer was lifting all the rocks into here or so I feel like it's been made collectively but I think you're right the succession planning has to do with us slowly but surely stepping out of direction and letting that direction evolve from those that come now and come continually and see what happens after it. This has been a a lovely conversation. It's a strange one for the two of us to put on tape rather than just chatting by the fire like we usually do. Have you any last thoughts in summing up the conversation? Right now, the biggest piece for me is this tug of war between the conventional system and the conventional means of ownership and capitalism pressures and all that kind of stuff. And the, the way I would love and we would love to see the world where it's communal and people are helping each other. And I feel like when I started this journey, I was very much of the system, the, the, what I would call the old world that I'm, I believe is in battle with where we're going or we're going back to. I was from there and slowly making my way here where I'm not all the way to a fully natural place or a communal place, but I feel like it's worth the journey. And I think that the biggest change for me, and it sort of happened alongside and possibly because of doing that, is that I turned from a person who kind of saw the world in a kind of glass half empty way to someone who sees the world as a glass half full. 
part of that comes from trusting and that if there was anyone else who was on a similar sort of journey, I would say that it's not trivial and it's not easy at all to trust. Trust people, trust community and trust that where you're going is a good place. But I would say that it is definitely worth, definitely worth doing. Thank you.